0: Welcome to the Lover's Hole. You're with Mike. And Ian. And we are rereading the Aubrey Matron novels of Patrick O'Brien. Ian, we're well into... The Reverse of the Medal. Catch us up from last week.
1: Well, Mike, last week we were mostly with Jack. As the Surprises crew had been paid off and been scattered to the four winds, Jack had taken the packet ship to get to London faster, and he'd met this guy, Ellis Palmer, a government official. Um, Jack had saved Palmer from a bit of a scrape and apparently had helped keep Palmer's secret papers from being stolen. And in return, this grateful Palmer had told Jack of a potential peace agreement to be signed with France in just a few days, and had given Jack a list of securities, of stocks and shares that he can buy and get rich, assuming that he buys those shares before the peace is announced. He swears Jack to secrecy over this list. He says, though, that Jack can share the list with a couple of friends, but they all have to limit their buying. And this is almost looking like it could go to plan. But right at the end of the chapter, Jack a little bit drunk, had shared this list with his father and also in the company of several of his father's unsavoury, money-grabbing friends in their London club. Hmm. And nothing has yet come of that, Mike, but it was sounding pretty ominous about how all of that was set up. And we were left with some big questions ringing about what's, what's with Jack now and these investments and this stock market movement. But Mike, this week, we're going to be mostly with Stephen. We're going to see him in London, getting back to the Grapes and Half Moon Street. He's looking to talk to Diana. We're going to see Stephen seeking out Sir Joseph Blaine and learning about major changes in naval intelligence and in Whitehall. There's more poetry. That's right, more poetry from Dryden, him. And we're going to get an interesting seabird, some Greek mythology, and a birthday party for a regent. And we're also going to catch up with our good friend Mr. Ray, so Mike, there's a lot to squeeze in this week.
0: Oh, there really is. There really is. Here, this is this is a fascinating chapter, and it, and it is. As you say, you know, we kind of got this view of Jack last in chapter four, five, mostly we're going to get a view of Stephen here. And we open with Stephen. He's walking to the grapes. You know, he's headed through the liberties of the Savoy. His intent is to get changed, to be shaved, to check in with Mrs. Broad, his landlady, who Diana often stops by and talks to, to learn a little bit more about Diana and what her mood is before he heads over to Half Moon Street to talk to Diana. And and he's really anxious, so he's kind of walking through uh, the Savoy uh, on autopilot here. And he, yeah. he turns a corner, and, and O'Brien does this great job telling us how his feet are kind of taking him over these things that he doesn't even remember, but his feet know not to step in. But when he looks up, he sees this great burned-out char of a shell, and he's thinking, oh my gosh, you know, I must have made a wrong turn. This this can't be the grapes. And, and doesn't think that he's really there yet. He's kind of checking himself, but he feels something touch the back of his leg. And I, I thought this was a fascinating way to kind of ground Stephen, who's been in his head about Diana. It says, turning, he saw a large, rough, ugly yard dog bowing and waving his tail. His lips were writhed back in a grin that might express extreme pleasure or extreme rage. And Stephen instantly recognized the butcher's mongrel. He was not a promiscuous dog. He belonged firmly to the butcher. But he and Stephen had always passed the time of day, and there was a steady, longstanding affection between the two. And I I just, ah, uh, you know, I'm I'm such a Team Stephen guy anyway. And I love this description of Stephen and the dog's special relationship. I mean, yeah. you know, kind of Stephen and children, Stephen and animals. I had forgotten how much I needed this right now yeah. <laughs> as we kind of press on in the story here, right? <laughs> yeah. And and the butcher greets Stephen and he's all smiles. You know, he kind of says, you know, as soon as he saw his dog bowing and scraping like some French punch and Judy, he knew it must be the doctor returned here. And the butcher confirms to Stephen that in fact it is the grapes, you know, and, and he tells Stephen that Mrs. Broad has left to go stay with family because Her insurance claim, and she needs that insurance money to rebuild it, was was at first denied. So we know that insurance companies were no different a couple Mm -hmm. hundred years ago than they are today. (laughs) Biggest department, denial of claims. Sorry (laughs) for my insurance friends out there. Anyway, as he's talking to Stephen about the loss of the grapes, the butcher says, every time I look across the way, I feel the liberty has a wound in it. And and I'm thinking, oh, because I, you know, I, I'm a little bit thinking, I know where this is going. And yes, doesn't the liberty have a wound in it? Oh. And O'Brien, as he so often does, picks it up from the end of that paragraph right to the next one. The next one starts, a wound and a strangely unexpected one, thought Stephen, walking north. He had had no idea how much that quiet haven meant to him. And there were also some fairly important collections he'd left there, mostly of bird skins, many books. The immeasurably greater wound, Mrs. Matron does not live here anymore, delivered at the Half Moon Street house, lacked that sudden staggering quality. And for the moment, it shocked him less. And I'm like, ah, gosh, here we are. You know, I'm so caught up with this. First conversation between Diana and Stephen, and she's gone, she's gone, and 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 it sounds like Stephen said that this shocked him less than losing the grapes. And I'm thinking, is this a little bit of denial? Is this, uh, or is this Stephen kind of saying, okay, hold on a bit, maybe I'm expecting this a little bit, but anyways, I don't know. It's definitely between the dog, between the way Stephen's been reacting. He's a lot more introspective, seems to be a little bit more kind of in touch with himself. I, I, I don't yeah. know, What do you think?
1: Well, it's, I, I was looking at this thinking, why did we have the burning down of the grapes? Because I, yeah. I, I, I don't think I'm spoiling anything if I say this doesn't have any consequences for the rest of the story. You know, Mrs. Broad doesn't go out to see disguised as a bosun's mate to, to make a living. There's no consequence for it, really. But it just plays this role to sort of set up and undercut and modify and help yes. us understand Stephen's response is partly as a sleight of hand thing so he can whack us over the head with this other bit of bad news about Diana. And it's really fascinating. It allows him to play this kind of subverting trick with this really bad news, which is the thing that Orion loves to do with big pieces of uh, of bad character news. And it's, it's just really, really, makes this chapter really hard to read. You know, it's, yes. it's been, he's, Stephen's been looking forward to finding out what's going on with Diana and did his letter make it and what's happening with Sir Joseph Blaine and he can't get that. He can't get that. And it's a really clever bit of storytelling, I think.
0: Yeah. And and it, it, it's fascinating because as you say in the way it sets it up, you know, Stephen walks onto St. James Street. He's he's walking away now, you know, from Half Moon Street, from the Grapes, and he's telling himself, O'Brien writes, he shall most deliberately feel nothing until I have some confirmation. There are a thousand possible explanations. And, and it kind of takes me right back to as he's looking at the grapes, he's thinking, well, let me cross the street. Let me make sure I'm looking at it from the right angle. No, yeah. no, the grapes is burned down, Stephen. Oh, well, wait, <laughs> Diane is not here, but let me cross the street. Let me look at it from, you know, it's like, oh, oh God, Stephen, I, I'm hurting for you.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And this this idea of a borrowed point of view continues because the thing that he gets when he first opens the letter from Diana is he gets a quote from a poem. So we're learning about this breakdown in the relationship, not really yet from her point of view, but she she quoting this poetry by Dryden. And Mike, it's it's probably worth us taking a listen to the whole poem the letter starts with her quoting this first line why should a foolish marriage vow, which long ago was made oblige us to each other now when passion is decayed there's a really nice reading of this along with a bunch of other poems by uh, an internet poetry reading artist called jordan harling we'll post out the link to his youtube channel and to this particular reading but why, why don't we take a listen to jordan harling reading marriage la mode by john dryden
2: Why should a foolish marriage vow, Which long ago was made, Oblige us to each other now, When passion is decayed? We loved, and we loved, As long as we could, Till our love was loved out in us both. But our marriage is dead, When the pleasure is fled. T'was pleasure first made it an oath, If I have pleasures for a friend, And father love in store, What wrong has he whose joys did end, And who could give no more? Tis a madman that he should be jealous of me, Or that I should bar him of another, For all we can gain is to give ourselves pain, When neither can hinder the other. Marriage a la mode. Written by John Dryden. Narrated by Jordan Harling.
1: It's fascinating. It takes a couple of goes to realise who's writing what to whom in the context of this marriage breakdown. And it's a wife writing to her husband, a husband whose joys in the marriage had ended first. And she's telling the husband that she herself is not wrong to have another interest, pleasures for a friend. And that it would be madness for the husband to be jealous, or for her to bar him from having another lover. So this is this very painfully downbeat way of expressing, you know, let's just free ourselves up from this. And it becomes the opening song in Dryden's play, which is actually a comedy called Marajala Mode, and in which two female characters end up holding their husband slash fiancés with the other's husband slash fiance, which is a thespian comedy formula beloved of playwrights down the ages. Right. And the men end up allowing this to happen in order for them to continue their affairs. But none of this is anything. Remember, Stephen knows Dryden, knows the canon of Dryden's works, knows the quotes, knows the lines, knows the allusions, because he is basically Patrick O'Brien walking the streets of the 19th century. Um, Stephen knows the quote and knows the allusion straight away. This is not something that I guess he wants to read in the opening of a letter from his wife, whom he appears to have wronged and to whom he hasn't really truthfully explained himself. And this is a, a, another way, Mike, for us to get this real heart wrench of a, another twist in the Stephen and Diana relationship.
0: Yeah, and it's like Stephen can't catch a break this morning. He walks over, the grapes is gone. He goes to Half Moon Street. Diana's not here. He walks back to he and Jack's club, and, and immediately he's handed this letter. <laughs> it's just like, oh, gosh, Stephen, I'm so sorry here. And as, as he gets a letter, he reads the section that you just talked about in the beginning one. And then O'Brien tells us that the next section is like closely packed, much underlined, but there's just not quite enough light. So Stephen really can't read it there. And fascinatingly, at, at the bottom of the letter, written carefully in another pen, Diana tells Stephen that his best uniform came in not long after he had left. And she didn't want it to be bothered by the mice or the moths at the grapes. So she sent it along to his club, along with what she writes, a warm flannel undershirt and drawers, several of which Diana had included. And she tells him, you know, they're in here. Here's where they are. Here's how I pack them. And she begs him to wear them while he's in England. So now, while this uniform, I'm, I suspect, came back in before she knew about Laura Fielding, clearly she knew about Laura Fielding before she penned the end of this note. So all of this having happened, she's still like, OK, Stephen, you know, I, I still have to dress you. I want you to take care of yourself. And, you know, it's kind of an interesting concern from a jilted spouse here. Yeah. Now, fascinatingly. There's some, several other letters in this stack. So, you know, Stephen's thinking, okay, I've, I've, I've got to go back and read the rest of this letter in, in other light, but let me just see what these other letters are here.
1: So, where is Stephen going to turn for refuge for something else for his mind to fixate upon while he's digesting this terrible news? Papers about the Manx shearwater. And how the heck did O'Brien dig up the Manx shearwater of all the bird species in the world? Why this one? Well, the Manx shearwater is, is it's called Manx because it's from the Isle of Man, the island between England and Ireland in the uh, in the Irish Sea. There, and on the Isle of Man, we find the Manx shearwater. It comes from the nesting of this species on the Isle of Man, where in the year 1014, Viking visitors were swarmed by a massive colony of these birds, and this really struck fear into the hearts of even the Vikings at night, and. If we dig into how these birds behave and what they sound like, we start to learn a little bit about why O'Brien might have chosen the Shearwater. They're generally silent at sea, even during their migrations, but they're very raucous at night in their breeding colonies. And this has to do with the difference between the genders. The male Shearwater has clear ringing and kind of shrieking tones in its voice. That's not present in the repertoire of the females. And when the pair duets, when they call out together the female can recognize the voice of their mates, but interestingly not of their young. So shearwaters are good at distinguishing the voice of their paired other adult bird. The females can't distinguish the voice of their own offspring. So these females don't provide post-nesting care. Any shearwater chick in a burrow is likely on its own, so voice identification doesn't come into the question anyway. And even though shearwaters return to breeding colonies from March onwards, the females often leave again for two to three weeks before egg laying in early may so they kind of wander about and they're not really attached they're not very domestic birds not very motherly birds at all and mike since we're thinking about diana i can't imagine that it's an accident i can't imagine that o'brien didn't know this about sheer waters and wanted to raise the idea of a peripatetic not very motherly female in connection with this
0: yeah, one other fascinating thing on the shearwater is that you know they come back to these same colonies every year to breed, except that you know the males absolutely make it every year. About half of the females sort of head elsewhere every year, oh, and I thought, oh wow. my gosh, here we are! Right, right. Yes. I I think it, you know, this is great uh, insights here. And and for O'Brien has said, okay, here's a stack of letters. Oh, he happened to get two letters you know, on the mang Shearwater, which he really attended to. And I thought, yeah. you know, this is O'Brien's saying, okay, stop, stop. I've got an Easter egg. Really, really pick up this corner of the carpet right here. You got to yeah. look at this. So fascinating. <laughs> Absolutely fascinating. So maybe, maybe we can get some of these, uh, you know, god-awful shrieking. A lot of the islands that were said to be haunted or have trolls, you know, actually ended up just having large colonies of mang waters in breeding colonies there. Well, we get this great little aside, and and maybe it's O'Brien's way of saying, well, Stephen, you know, you've you've lost a lot, but there are some other things that, you know, perhaps <laughs> compensation. <laughs> She's not all perfect, right? Right. Yeah. And you know, Stephen goes up to the library here in the club and and he returns to Diana's letter now that he's got a little bit better light. And and she writes that, you know, his parading this redhead around the Mediterranean You know, that he should have known it would be resented as an open and direct insult. And she would never have expected such an ill-bred thing from Stephen, especially doing it and not even justifying himself with a story that, as she says, she could even pretend to believe. You know, it's like, okay, we got to save face a little bit. You didn't let me do that. And Stephen now is looking all over the letter to find the date. Okay, when you know did she write this after she read his letter, after she heard Ray's explanation? No, no. But there's no date on it. She says that she, like Lady Nelson, resented it, and and there's a good fun one. I think a lot of our readers know the uh, <laughs> Lord Nelson's dalliances.
1: Yeah, and and Lady Nelson had a really, really good reason to resent it. Yes, <laughs> more yes, than she just a did. rumor.
0: Oh, exactly. And she says, and this kind of hurt me, that she had never expected Stephen to behave like a scrub. She expected that of ordinary men, but she had never thought Stephen to be ordinary. Uh, And then then she writes, and this just kind of tugs at my heart, she would never, never forget his kindness to her and no amount of resentment would do away with her friendship Yet she was glad, yes, so glad. She writes that they had never been married in a Christian or a Roman Catholic church, and then, clearly, after a pause and with a second pen, he was never to think unkindly of her. And after that, she has the kind of the P.S. about his shirts and everything. So, you oh. know, God, she's still got this affection for Stephen here. Yeah, but. The whole thing just seems to be so blown out of the water. And we know that Stephen is innocent in all this. And we know that he just doesn't tell people about that part of himself. It's why he doesn't keep a servant. It's why... You know, it's why he's so good in intelligence, but oh my gosh. And, and I'm not sure this whole idea about, I'm so glad we were never married in a church, Christian or Roman Catholic. And I thought, oh, wait, wait, let's not, those are not Mm. two opposites. Those two are Protestant Roman Catholic, right? Right. But still is, is she thinking at at first, I thought this was kind of a dig and then I thought, well, maybe this is Diana thinking this will make it easier for Stephen to move on as she's moved on. I don't know.
1: And, It's all the more agonizing because I think Stephen didn't really wrestle over this as a dilemma. It wasn't like he really landed on this back in Malta and thought, ooh, should I carry on this thing with Laura? Or should I not? It might look bad. He was like, I have to do this. So it wasn't like he had made a compromise in his suffering for a, a, a compromise that he made. He had absolutely not expected to have to explain this. He had absolutely not expected it to be a thing at all. It was absolutely something that he needed to do as a service imperative. And nobody else can relieve him of the burden of it now. Yeah,
0: he was serving king and country. He was protecting Laura Fielding. Um, Yeah, he was doing all the right things for all the right reasons. He did, you know, he was
1: tempted, but he didn't follow through. And bless him, all, all of his thoughts about this are not that it's an injustice but that he's finding ways to understand it of her. The text says, he would no more have thought unkindly of her than he would of a falcon that had flown free, imagining some injury. And by the way, this idea of Diana as a hunting bird is, is not the first time we've had this image of her. And right. it's not the last. He had known very proud, high-tempered falcons, passionately attached and passionately offended, but he was wounded to the heart and he grieved. At first, with a generalized grief that included his own desolate loss, so intensely that he clasped his hands and rocked to and fro, then more particularly for her. Wow. And yeah, he, he really, really loves this woman. Yes. Um, he thinks this is the most disastrous thing that Diana has ever done to herself. Running off with Yagyelo. He thinks Yagyelo is an ass. Albeit a tall, beautiful, golden haired one. Um, we were chatting to somebody on social media this week about should should I pay attention to Yag Yellow? Because he seems like a decent guy. I'm like, yeah, yeah, go right ahead. Yeah. <laughs> he yeah, the Aubrey
0: footnotes. I love it. Well done.
1: Yeah. Well, here we realize that Yag Yellow is not the lightweight, frothy, inconsequential ass that we thought. It turns out that he's an ass with the power to do some damage. He's, Jagiello that is, is volatile. He doesn't resist temptation. He won't be constant. He's not long-term partner material, marriage material for Diana. They can't marry anyway because she's still married in law to Stephen, even if she's willing to relinquish their being married in faith part. An active social life, says the text, an active social life was as necessary to her as meat and drink. And Stephen had no reason to suppose that Swedish society would be particularly kind to an unmarried foreign woman whose only protector was a young and foolish hazar. Mm. The thought of her fate in five years or even less made his heart sick. Like, I think Diana was on the verge of that kind of damage to her reputation and lack of access to society already way back in India in HMS Surprise. Right. And she's facing the same thing again. At least, he thought, she had enough of her own assets not to have to rely on any man. He hoped that she had invested her money well, And so he's going to go and check with her man of business, the banker, Nathan, to be sure. And that calls to mind also the fact that he's got this brass box and he straps the brass box to himself under his clothing to make sure that he doesn't leave it in a coach. And he sets off to see Nathan and to return the box. I might. this is another unhappy connection in this chapter, right? We've had, it's funny, it, it was a whole book ago. It was chapter five of The Far Side of the World when this box of 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 money of financial instruments was found perhaps by accident by Stephen and Jack when right. they retook the packet Danay. And it's been brought back to mind every now and again, just dropped in the text almost inconsequentially. And it's always been referred to as unlucky or unfortunate, this brass box. We never yet found out the exact sum that's contained in it. Presumably it's in you know large denomination bearer bonds or something. But we're reminded Gently, each time it's been mentioned, that it's somehow a potentially corrupting, you know, inconceivably large sum of money. And it's back in Stephen's mind and on Stephen's persons now. I wonder what's going to become of it in this chapter.
0: Well, you know, Stephen at least is smart about this. He writes a note to Sir Joseph Blaine, his admiralty boss, head of intelligence, that he would like to see him. But then Stephen, you know, he gets ready to send this note off and he realizes that he can't even read it. You know, his hands are shaking so bad now. You know, he's diswrought about Diana and it takes him several attempts before he can write it legibly. Um, he finishes up and he sends the note not to Blaine's office at the Admiralty, but to his private residence in Shepherd's Market. So, you know, we, we remember he and Stephen meeting there before. So he's trying to set up this meeting so he can get this box, as you say, in, out, of, you know, out of his hands and over to Blaine and get over to see Nathan here.
1: Although this is a chapter mostly about Stephen, um, we are going to spend a moment in Jack's company, and I wonder if they can um, help each other out here. Um, Jack walks into the club, greets Stephen. He's heard about the grapes. He says he's very sorry to learn about the burning down of the grapes and tells Stephen straight out that he, has Jack, has something important to share. Stephen thinks it's going to be about the legal cases, but it's not. Jack says it's something amazing. And in the library, Stephen sees Jack's face as the text says, alive with pleasure at the thought of making his friend's fortune. Remember, Jack has come to try and share this stock tip news with Stephen as the hopefully second person to benefit from it after his father right jack shows him the list of investments and stresses that these investments need to be made in the next few days meanwhile a message comes in for Stephen to say that blaine can see him after 6 30 that day so jack looks at Stephen and realizes i mean Stephen's face is clearly going to be showing the shock of the letter from diana and jack asks if he's been taken poorly steven explains what's going on in the letter says that diana has gone to live in sweden Jack, I think at this point, realises that it must be Yellow, but he doesn't want to look like he'd realised it and doesn't really have anything decently that he feels he can say. Stephen explains that Diana had heard that Laura Fielding was Stephen's mistress and that uh, parading her around was a callous affront to Diana. And this is a subject that Jack famously makes false steps over. Stephen realises that he just has time to call on Ray and on Nathan, Diana's banker, before he goes to the meeting with Blaine. So his mind is not really clearly on any one thing at the moment. He asks if Jack is fully committed to this and on learning that Jack says he is, then he realizes there's no point now in asking how Jack had checked out his informant, this guy, Palmer. Stephen thinks that even if the information is mistaken, Jack will still own the shares and no, no great harm can come. And off he goes. And Mike, I'm, I'm looking at this thinking, Stephen's so distracted. I think, Undistracted, successful, married, resourceful spy, Stephen would have asked a few more questions and might have got a bit behind this Ellis Palmer investment story in time to at least repair or avoid some of the damage that's coming.
0: Yeah, I I think I, I hadn't thought about that. Again, it's a great point. That's kind of the one. The one thing where this claiming, you know, oh, i know a matron, you know, I saw him at the Institute. I saw him at the Royal Society. I've read all his papers. I think Stephen would have probably said, Wait, who's this guy again? And he's in the diplomatic service and his Ellis Palmer. Hmm. Yeah. Doesn't ring any bells for me. Yeah. <laughs> Well, S- Stephen heads out, of course, as you said, he stops at Ray's house and he's told that Ray is not at home. And as he's leaving, he's thinking, oh, yeah, I kind of forgot that Ray owes me all this great deal of money. And and he goes then to Nathan's house and, you know, asks for Nathan. And he's relieved when he hears that uh, Mr. Nathan could not see him because he's kind of remembering, I think, as he's waiting that, wait a minute we 're separated now, and and nathan 's going to know we 're separated and and really it 's kind of improper for me to be asking about diana 's finances but mr nathan 's younger brother, Meyer, it does greet Stephen. And, you know, insists that, uh, you know, he says, it's raining. Let me call you a coach. Let me call you a chair. So he was saying, no, no, no. He says, well, here, here's this umbrella. And he gives him this huge whalebone umbrella to take with him. And he's walking through this jostling crowd with this big umbrella. He wants to stop at the stagecoach office. And, and there's this kind of road where, between where he is and the office. And O'Brien tells us it's, it's deep in mud and horse dung. But there's a young sweeper boy there. And so he clears what uh, what O'Brien calls a Red Sea passage. So we can imagine the Israelites, you know, crossing through the Red Sea. You know, he's sweeping all this mud and dung out of the way. And Stephen gets to the other side, clearly not thinking much. And, and you know, the little boy says, you know, hey, don't forget the sweeper. So Stephen shoves his hand in his pocket to give him a tip and realizes he's been pickpocketed. You know his his pockets are absolutely clean, no money, no handkerchief or anything else. And he tells this boy who is you know kind of beside himself. You know he's like, you know what kind of idiot are you? Didn't your mom tell you you know you don't keep your money in your pockets? There. Stephen walks away. The little kid says, you know, whore's son, old bumpkin, whore's son, old cuckold. <sighs> like, oh, oh, oh. You know Stephen can't hear this, but we can hear it, and it's like oh man and i guess it's you know it's it's just meant to be you know a basic dispersion you know but as we know it you know that arrow would would fly true right to stephen's heart at this moment
1: it would and it's especially wounding coming from a child right at a moment when stephen is emotionally literally and practically in the poop yes (laughs) too true ah so Stephen takes a parcel from his sea chest in the stagecoach office and arranges to have the chest delivered. He walks away to Shepherd Market towards Joseph Blaine's place with the parcel and the heavy umbrella that he got from Mayer. And he realises that the, this umbrella is Mayer's way of expressing sympathy for him. He says, Stephen had instantly perceived the more than usually grave, attentive expression, the considerate tone, and in his present excoriated state, it seemed to him that it resembled most forms of commiseration. Useless, embarrassing, cumbersome, and painful. And he's really hoping that Sir Joseph is not going to try and console him. Stephen doesn't take help or solicitude or affection or consolation from anybody, well, at any time. Right. And this is not the moment for him to get anybody saying, oh, I'm sorry, hon, how are you doing? The relief, therefore, I think for me, was palpable when he gets to sit down with Sir Joseph And Sir Joseph doesn't try and mollycoddle him or give him any sympathy. He just gets into some business. And I think Sir Joseph is thinking, I'm going to help Stephen out of whatever scrape he's in, in due course. So he gets a very normal, regular, warm greeting from Sir Joseph. They talk about the voyage. They talk about other entomologists. They talk about the Royal Society. And Stephen asks about Sir Joseph's health. He's always inquiring about the health of other people and their private parts, this guy, Stephen Maturin. Um, (laughs) Stephen Stephen had prescribed something for sexual vigor when Blaine was about to be married, and it has worked very well. Um, Blaine says Priapus would himself have been put to the blush, Priapus being the Greek fertility god and patron of seafarers. Um, But Blaine, we learn, had changed his mind. He decided not to marry he says i reflected upon matrimony and although i found a great deal to be said for it in theory when i looked attentively among my friends i found that the practice did not seem to produce much happiness scarcely a single pair did i find who appeared really suited to please one another for more than a few months few of my friends can be said to be happily married and in some cases he broke off evidently regretting his words and I think he's rather carelessly and thoughtlessly stumbled out of entomology and beetles into general statements about married life. And all, all we read about this is the fact that he trails off, but he's clearly trailing off in response to what he sees in the reaction on, on Stephen's face.
0: And, <sighs> and perhaps what he already knows about Stephen and Diana that he was trying not to speak of. And he's like, oh, God, I've just stepped in it here. My right? yeah,
1: tongue's run away with me. He goes along to think aloud that marriage and intelligence make awkward yoke fellows and adds, not that I am much concerned with intelligence anymore. Are you not? Said Stephen, looking into his face. And Mike, we get another blow here for Team Stephen and Team Admiralty Intelligence. Right. We learn that Blaine says everything that he had forecasted and warned Stephen about before the last journey had come about. All of this stuff to do with... Influence and intrigue against Blaine and on behalf of mysterious, murky other interests. Blaine gets up to check with his housekeeper about dinner and Stephen asks to borrow a handkerchief, telling Blaine about the pocket picking. And he says, losing fourpence and a spotted handkerchief and a mighty dose of self-esteem. My pocket picked clean as though I were just off the mountain or the bog for shame. And I think that's just a tiny token of how low Stephen's been brought by all of of the news that we're getting in this chapter.
0: Right. Well, after dinner, uh, Sir Joseph says that, you know, what's happened to him at the Admiralty is like Stephen having his pocket picked. They're both so experienced that it shouldn't have happened to them, and neither of them have any idea who's done it to them. Blaine explains that he was out for a fortnight. He'd had a, a horse accident on an icy road. And during those two weeks, his opponents had completely changed the organization there. All of Blaine's friends were removed or placed in obscure positions. Their clerks were taken away. They were, you know, moved into poor offices. Even when some, you know, remote agent somewhere had a slip up, it was all held against Blaine's people there. So they're treated with disrespect. Uh, one example he gives is they're being asked to turn in their keys to the private door and. Blaine says if it had been any kind of an ordinary department, he would have resigned immediately. But given that it is intelligence, he really longs to put things right. And Stephen says, you know, when you speak about your opponents, do you have them clearly in sight? And Blaine's saying, no, I don't have them at all in sight here. You know, and he tries to kind of go through and say, you know, who might have done this here? And he says, you know, Barrow is back as second secretary. Remember that Barrow was out sick and that Ray was kind of acting for him and that Barrow and Blaine have not liked each other for a number of years. And he describes Barrow, he says he's he's laborious, he's diligent, he's devoted to form and detail, he's respectful of rank to a servile degree, but he's also widely ignorant, incapable of taking a broad, intelligent view of any situation. But he does add that, you know, this guy, Barrow's kind of rose from a humble beginning, and so like some people who do that— is a very high opinion of his abilities. And at first, Blaine had thought that maybe the reorganization was Barrow's attempt to gain more power, especially since he had kept Ray, a, a very ambitious man, as on as his chief advisor. But then, and and I love this description, Blaine realized that Barrow, and O'Brien writes it this way, is a little man, and his idea of a famous victory is six extra clerks. And a turkey carpet. (laughs) It's great.
1: Uh, It's great. That's that's like the the essence of the kind of petty-fogging British civil servant, and I guess civil servant anywhere. But yeah, if if you've read anything by C.P. Snow, John le Carré, Anthony Powell, Anthony Trollope, this is like the functionary in one line. And we kind of enjoy that little fling at Barrow, but then we dig into just how far... Blaine and Stephen are from really knowing what's going on, because Blaine goes on to sort of skirt around the possibility that Ray might be a problem. He says that Ray, although flighty, pederastical, and unsound, is clever and appears to have much more treasury influence. And remember, we the readers know that Ray is a traitor. Blaine and Stephen don't yet. And it's a little bit of fresh agony every time they keep open the possibility that Ray is competent but flawed. Blaine thinks that it's outside, in any case, outside of people like Ray, he thinks there's some Machiavell, possibly in the Treasury, possibly in the Cabinet Office who is manipulating them, but who he is or what his aim may be, I cannot tell. There are times when I feel that the ordinary, insatiable appetite for power, patronage, and having one's own way explains it all. And there are times when I fancy I smell, if not a rat, then a pretty sinister mouse, and Blaine says he won't say any more until he knows more because he says, with a little bit of self-awareness here, a disappointed angry man is very apt to exaggerate the wickedness of his opponents. And that's that, that, that's a pretty good echo of what Machiavelli, we had Machiavelli invoked a few sentences ago. Machiavelli Wait. said, never ascribe to malice, that which can be put down to incompetence. Right. Blaine saying a version of the same thing here. A disappointed angry man exaggerates the wickedness of his opponents. And Blaine says, these people are cut... Blaine off from some category of report. I don't know what the C and F reports are, but they're clearly important to Blaine and he's not getting them anymore. But he has old friends in the other intelligence services who will help him get to the bottom of this.
0: Boy, and I'm I'm really hoping that we've got a plot spinning there. I'm fascinated to find out where where does this go? Yeah. yeah. You know, yeah. Between Blaine, between Stephen, between these other friends and other intelligence services. It's like, ooh, I can sort of see a whole separate book here. I like this. Well, Stephen switches topics and tells Blaine about his Stephen's role in the interception and retaking of the packet that and and this small brass box. And he thinks Stephen thinks that he may have exceeded his authority in bringing the box back in person. It's it's bothering him. It's a greater sum. Stephen tells Blaine that he wants to be associated with were answerable for. Giving the warning that that he had gotten in Blaine's letter before this whole mission, Stephen thought it best if he just sealed this box and bring it back on the surprise. Blaine asked him if he's told Ray or Barrow yet, and he hasn't. And then Stephen unwraps this bandage from his around his waist, and, and the box falls again to the ground, pops open, and O'Brien writes, the amount astonished those who picked it up.
1: Whoa! And again, we we don't find out directly what the nature of these documents are, except that they they have a face value of this very very large amount of money that nobody ever names. And I think O'Brien's having a bit of fun with us here. Um, it's a I guess you'd call it a MacGuffin. You know, it's the thing that nobody can ever talk about, but everybody's pursuing. I, I don't know if you've seen the Quentin Tarantino movie, Pulp Fiction, but there's a briefcase containing something that glows gold in the face of Samuel L. Jackson and people get it and they look at it and they go, and then they close the briefcase again. And it reminds me a little bit of that. Is this Elvis's gold suit or gold bars or Marcellus Wallace's conscience or something else? We don't know what it is. Nice. But Blaine says to get down to a relative description of the amount in the box. Blaine says, it's more than the department's entire budget, so it must have come from somewhere else. He says, this represents the subversion of a realm. Hmm. And Stephen says the line that he said to Jack as they picked it up, in vain may heroes fight and patriots rave if secret gold sap on from knave to knave. Nice little rhyming couplet. He asks Stephen then if he remembers that poem and how it continues. Now, we know he does because he told Jack in The Far Side of the World, but Stephen esteems Blaine. He likes him and asks him to please remind him of the contents of this poem. Blaine recites the lines about blessed paper credit selling a king or buying a queen. And he suggests that they make an inventory of all of the notes in the box, names and dates and figures. And as they work, Blaine tells Stephen that Barrow had started off being servile toward Blaine until he learned that Blaine was also the son of a working man. He thinks that Barrow likes Ray because of all of Ray's connections. And there's a bit of snobbery going on here rather than an esteem for anybody's intellectual power. And when they finish, Stephen seals the box again. Blaine suggests that Stephen take it to the Admiralty, ask for him, Blaine, and when told that Blaine is not there, then ask to see Ray, since that was Stephen's last contact. So he's nicely setting up a reason why Stephen can be handed off to Ray rather than going and asking for him directly. Because they want this handing over to be informal, and they're trying to avoid certain sets of cause and effect being apparent to people who then come into contact with this money. If there is bad faith, then asking for a receipt won't do any good. So staying informal is probably the right way. And Blaine hopes to use his contact, Mr. Nathan, to learn who attempts to cash any of the notes. So they're going to do a sort of a money tracing, money laundering type entrapment thing here, they're hoping. Because he thinks that greed is at least part of the motive for what's going on at the Admiralty. And they've talked a little bit about how there are people at the top of government who seem to do quite well for themselves. So this seems like an excellent trap. And Mike, I was kind of pleased how Blaine and Maturin are setting this up, but I'm also thinking they're really out on a limb here mm. because they can presume what people will do or not do with information about this money and who's got it and how much is there and how much was there to begin with and what's left and what's the role of Stephen and Blaine. But either by malign action or incompetence, there are loads of possible reasons why this could go wrong. They've got no top cover. They've got nobody who'll step in and vouch for the original intent of this money and for the good faith that Stephen and Blaine are showing. And by continuing to involve themselves in the fate of the money, I think they're still a big risk. Maybe even a bigger risk than Jack. You know, Jack's fortune and his reputation are in danger with this stock picking scheme. But I think maybe Steven's life is in danger here. So Jack and Stephen in parallel. Are really significant risk. Maybe you might say the biggest risk that they've faced yet on land, at least in these books. Right, right.
0: Couldn't couldn't agree with you more. Yeah, yeah.
1: Well, they agree,
0: Blaine and Stephen, that from now on they're going to uh, meet at Blacks. You know, uh, Stephen told him that he's he's at Blacks. Blaine says, you know, that's my club as well. And they want to make sure that Stephen is not tied to Blaine as this game plays out. And Blaine also suggests that Stephen armor himself against bad faith. So this idea that, you know, as you were just saying, you know, we don't have much cover right now and, you know, everybody that's been associated with me before has been treated with this disrespect. So let's get you a little credibility here and let's make sure that these people who are at least... What Blaine sees is kind of the agents of whoever is behind this big scheme, you know, treat Stephen a little bit better. And he says there's going to be this birthday party for the regent and they're going to have a levy. And he suggests that Stephen, who is, you know, treated in the past this Duke of Clarence, the regent's brother, Stephen should go to this party. He should be seen interacting with royalty and with some of Stephen's other, as Blaine says, grander friends. And then it's kind of an interesting thing. As Stephen's getting ready to go, Blaine also suggests that as Stephen is offered a mission across the channel, that is to France, that he should turn it down. And Stephen's, you know, kind of a little startled. Wait a minute, wait a minute. You know, all right, all this bad stuff's going on, but I'm still fighting Bonaparte is kind of the way I took Stephen's startled reaction here. And Blaine says, no, 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 you know, kind of, I'm I'm just saying that there's a lot of loose talk at Whitehall. There's a lot of inefficiency and that could endanger Stephen. And we've had that before when he was going to speak at the Institute, when, you know, it's like, you know, maybe you should not be seen in France right now. And then Blaine says it. he's going to walk Stephen home since the streets are far from safe. And then he adds this interesting line, though, indeed, says Blaine, it might save a world of trouble where your pocket to be quietly picked again. And I think he's underscoring your point, Ian, that, you know what? this brass box it could be the most excellent trap for us to have set in the world and then again you know we may get caught up in this thing if it blows back on us so maybe if somebody else took it and we're not associated with it it might not be the worst thing in the world fascinating
1: well maybe our listeners all want to go and uh, check the lining of their brass boxes and maybe without anybody's pocket getting picked we should take a short break and come back what do you say oh absolutely If you're enjoying the podcast, please come and join our supporters on Patreon. Go to patreon.com forward slash Lubbers Hole. Welcome back. We're having a hard time with Stephen's story. We're having a hard time with all of this adversity and risk and bad news and doom and gloom that's piling up on him. So we do get a moment with the company of Jack as well. O'Brien tells us that the next morning is bright and clear, but, he says, to a sailor's eye, there was foul weather breeding there in the east-northeast. Jack and Stephen head over to the Admiralty together, and we learn that the place is filled with a dozen officers looking for a command. The First Lord sees Jack, and in his curiously frigid and inhumane way, Melville tells Jack that they were glad to hear from his dispatch that the South Sea mission was accomplished, and that surprise had been brought back in good condition. He has no command to appoint Jack to, uh, but says he'll keep him in mind. And he says that the board is going to sell the surprise out of the service. Jack says that he hopes to buy her since she probably won't fetch a mint of money. And Jack doesn't also say what he was clearly thinking, which is, I'm going to be quids in in a couple of days time. Right. So he puts in a word for our friend Pullings. And after the formal interview, he asks the First Lord how his younger brother, Hennage Dundas, is doing. And Dundas is in Portsmouth readying the Eurydice. And we'll come back to the name Eurydice because the Brits have a fondness for naming frigates after mythical uh, personages. Henage is in Portsmouth readying the Eurydice for the North American station. Melville asks Jack, as Hennig's friend, to let him know just how his irregularities are disapproved of by the world in general.
0: Stephen, while, you know, Jack's talking to the first Lord, Stephen's waiting and and he's been moved to an obscure back part of the building since he asked for Sir Joseph. And, you know, after a while, he asked for Mr. Ray and he's moved to yet another just completely naked room. And, you know, he's still kind of got the effects of his nighttime laudanum going and he's all good with that. Um, And he really is thinking, you know, I want to see Ray because I want to find out when he gave Diana his letter. And after an hour of sitting there, the you know, the clock chimes and Stephen realizes, whoa, 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 you know, they're disrespecting me here. And so at a quarter after the hour, he walks out and he, he must be a little perturbed because there's a bunch of startled clerks in his wake. And he leaves a note at the front desk saying, you know, he'll return the next day at 11.
1: So Stephen, the next day, it turns out, does not see Ray, but he's glad he's Stephen himself isn't in form. He doesn't want to put up with Ray's pitying face with, as O'Brien describes it, his decently but not entirely concealed civil triumph. And Stephen is still at, at the mercy of people and places outside on the streets of London. He's jostled on the way to Whitehall and shoves people back. This is really out of character for Stephen. And we can feel some trouble brewing then as Stephen makes his way to the Admiralty and at Whitehall he's shown into a grand room which could have been Ray's but... Behind the desk is somebody described as a middle-sized dry man dressed in glossy black with an immense starched white neckcloth and an uncommon amount of powder in his hair, the very type of superior official. The habitual expression of his face was authoritarian and discontented but at present there was a certain nervousness upon it too. He presented himself as Mr. Lewis acting for the head of the department. And by way of establishing moral superiority right away, he observed that Dr. Maturin was 10 minutes late. And Mike, from then on, this conversation goes downhill between these two guys. Right. So Stephen says, well, did you know that you kept me waiting an hour yesterday? And Lewis says, well, I, I can't see all and sundry the moment they choose to walk in. And Stephen repeats this phrase, all and sundry, stirring the fire in the hearth. Um, as something to do with his hands, I think. Yes. Looking at his notes, Lewis sort of starts to row back and says, well, perhaps I chose the wrong expression. Um, I'm aware that you have a key to the private door. Return it, please. And Stephen says, well, I don't have the key to the private door. This was all foretold by Blaine in the meeting that Stephen had had with Blaine before. Lewis says that uh, Stephen had asked to speak about the Dane. Stephen asks then if he, Lewis, is aware of Stephen's mission and... This is a, a very blunt attempt to smoke at any bluff on Lewis's part. Lewis has got no subtlety at all. He says, well, I've got all the details here. And he taps this file with a red ribbon. And it's very clear to Stephen that Lewis is bluffing. He knows nothing about intelligence. He knows nothing about the DANE. He's an administrator who's been sent in to hear what Stephen has to say. And Stephen tells him that his appointed mission had taken place and that the papers were removed. And Lewis wants to know why Stephen had taken so long to alert the proper authorities. And Stephen's not having any of this. He says, well, I'm I'm not coming here to be reproved. And Lewis says, well, if you want any more money, then... And Stephen absolutely loses it. Christ's blood in heaven. By the way, I'm really enjoying reading this. I'm really enjoying reading this out loud. Stephen really goes for this guy. Oh, and he's ready for it. Christ's blood in heaven. You ignorant, incompetent, way-faced nestlecock. Mike, I am getting a t-shirt made with those words on <laughs> for, the, <laughs> for the right day. <laughs> you incompetent, wayfaced faced nestlecock, said Stephen in a low, venomous tone, leaning forward. Do you think I am a hired spy, an informer, that I have a master, a paymaster for God's love? To all his present bitterness, there was added the spectacle of an efficient intelligence service threatening ruin and his own dedicated, highly skilled form of warfare gone. ''You little silly man,'' he said. Lewis strained back in his chair, looking shocked and stupid. The look on Stephen's face appalled him. He said, ''Calm yourself, my dear sir, calm yourself.'' Stephen's hand shot across the desk, seized Lewis's nose, shook it furiously from side to side, so fast that the hair powder flew, wrung it left, right, right and left. He flung the standish into the fire, wiped his bloody hand on Lewis's neckcloth and said, if you wish to find me, sir, I am at Black's and walked out. Whoa. Oh. All right. Th- th- this is a reminder, like a hark back to another occasion when Stephen got in a fight with an official in the Admiralty. Back at the beginning of Desolation Island, Stephen was summoned to an interview with a guy, I think it was Admiral Sivright, um, another jumped up bluffing, casual, casually insolent administrator, who spoke disrespectfully about Diana, and Stephen had said, bread and blood, sir, I have pulled a man's nose for less. Good day to you. You know where to find me. This time, same response, except Stephen goes even further. He actually pulled the guy's nose this time.
0: Right, right. You know, I I think all that's missing here in the description is nobody mentions the reptilian glare or look (laughs) in Stephen's eyes, which we always hear, but I could see it. Oh my gosh. And clearly, Lewis could see it. Whoa. Well... You know, he heads back to the club. He, you know, he told him, basically, if you want to call me out, I'll be at Black's. So he goes back to Black's, and he sees Blaine there, and they have a dish of tea. And Blaine asks Stephen if he's seen how shares are rising, and Stephen hasn't. So we And we have all these little comments about the money market and shares and everything thrown in all along the way here so that while we're talking about Stephen here, we've got Jack's subplot kind of running in the background here. Stephen asks Blaine if he knows Lewis, and Blaine says he does. He, you know, he came over from Treasury. He is rectitude that is righteousness itself, and the letter of the law, a fount of platitude, and a very great affliction at a dinner party. <laughs> I think we can <laughs> we can see all of that for sure. Stephen asks if he's a fighting man, uh, you know, telling Blaine what he had done, and Blaine says, "No, no, no." definitely not a fighting man you know they might try to get a constable but uh you know the Admiralty would never allow that so he, he says basically he's just really happy that steven pulled him by the nose and yeah. steven says well you know I, i'm glad he's not a fighting man because i don't want to delay jack you know make him stay behind for a duel because i know he really wants to get home so it's like oh my gosh steven really still is in his reptilian form here it's not that i don't want to have the duel it's i don't want to inconvenience jack while i kill this guy Oh, (laughs) well, and then Stephen kind of follows up. He sees Jack later that night at the club and, and he tells Jack, you know what, you go ahead and head home by coach tonight. Don't don't wait for me for tomorrow. I'm going to be in in etymological and surgical meetings all day tomorrow. And then I've got to go to this birthday levy. He said, you know, we're not going to see each other anyways. And Jack says he will, as long as Stephen promises to come along, because Sophie is going to be so glad to see him. And Jack, of course, Jack assumes that Stephen has now bought all these shares. Jack asks if Stephen's seen the papers. And Stephen, kind of completely missing the reference, references, you know, I'll, I'll read them later before I go to bed. You'll be amazed, Jack called up the stairs. And this is only the beginning. Ha ha ha.
1: Oh, jeez. <laughs> well, high hopes, high hopes from Jack. Right. And meanwhile, part of the sort of, a top cover arrangement that Blaine and Stephen had cooked up between themselves was going to be that Stephen should attend a levy. So we have a rare situation where a personage from the Aubrey Matron series meets a member of the Royal family. Right. Let's see what's going to happen here. The birthday levy, this is an occasion when members of the court come and gather in the presence of the monarch, or in this case, the regent. The birthday levy is filled with folks who've come to share some kind of triumph um, to look at the faces of their disappointed rivals. This is a place where intrigue and backstabbing and jealousy and and strokes are kind of paid off. There are military people, there are people from the different ministries, there are civilians. This is a great place to gather intelligence and to see how things stand in terms of influence among the different people and the different parties. Stephen sees Blaine there. They don't speak. And Barrow who's having trouble with his sword and has an ill-bred jerk to his chin when Sir Joseph salutes him. And Ray is there talking with Barrow. And while all this is going on, the regent and his brothers walk through the crowd saying hello to a few people. So let me just do a quick quick catch-up on the regent and the regency. Skip forward by 30 seconds if you know about British history and you know, you know about the regency. The prince regent, this particular individual, um, was the eldest son of George III. Now, George III was in poor mental health. He'd actually been in poor mental health since 1770 odd, but by 1810, his mental health had completely failed him and he had a breakdown. And the country needed a monarch. We didn't have a way of naturally kind of succeeding a monarch that was incapacitated. So the government and the House of Lords created his eldest son as regent. So normally the title of heir to the throne is Prince of Wales, the male heir to the throne. They said, well, we need a monarch, so let's create the idea of Prince Regent. We never had a a regency in this form before, and we haven't had one since. So the king who was to be George IV served as Prince Regent from 1810 until 1820. We improvised constitutional law. That's how we do constitutions in Britain. We never really have one. We just make it up as we go along. The documents were prepared in the name of King George III, but without his seal and without his signature, which took a bit of awkward kind of... Fancy footwork from the people at the top of government. So from 1810 onwards, Prince George served as regent, took the place of the monarch in almost all functions, didn't have as strong a stronger political role as his father had had, but nonetheless still played a role in politics. And it was his responsibility still to choose and appoint government ministers. And this was the moment in history when Britain sort of acquired the custom. The the prime minister, the leader of the government is chosen from whichever party can command a majority in the House of Commons. We don't directly elect a prime minister. He or she is appointed. And this is where that kind of informal, casual bit of constitutionality came from, this moment of the regency. We haven't had one since, as I said. Um, We don't have to make it up anymore. We had regency acts enacted in parliament in 1937, 1943, and 1953 that now lay out clearly what happens when the monarch is under 18 or incapacitated or absent. And this regent, later to be king, who Stephen's depending on, is not a paragon of virtue. Uh, George IV was a gambling, debt-ridden, bastard-siring, obese, probably laudanum-addicted hedonist. He fell out with his wife so extremely that he had her name scratched out of the Book of Common Prayer. And this is the person. (laughs) Well, Stephen's seeking the protection of association with the throne not with the person who occupies the throne, let's be general. Right, right.
0: Well put. Well put. And great insight into the Regency.
1: Thank you. And it's interesting, you know, people people talk about the Regency as a period in time, like it was just 1750 to 1820, but it was to do with the fact that George III was sick and his son took over for a while.
0: That's right. All our Bridgerton watchers will, will remember a little bit of this <laughs> and yeah. the Mad King here. Right. Oh, Well, sure enough, the the regent comes through and and O'Brien points out that he does have a really nice ability to recognize names and faces. And he's kind of nodding and speaking politely as he goes by. He doesn't speak to Stephen, but the regent's brother, the Duke of Clarence, a Navy man, hails Stephen O'Brien writes in a quarterdeck voice and asks for a word with him. (laughs) And so everybody clearly gets... The next guy behind the region is calling Matron out of the crowd here, and sure enough, as they you know make their way down this line of people, uh, the Duke of Clarence comes right back to Matron here. Uh, he comes right over to him. He's sorry to hear about Jack and the surprise. And then the Duke, and and I love this, he calls Barrow over and introduces him to Stephen. And he does it very loudly, since he knows that Barrow has recently been sick. And so thinking like, you know, we treat the the recently ill like you must not be able to hear. I'll speak very loudly and and slowly here. And he tells Barrow to call on Dr. Matron the next time he's seized with the Marthambles. And and Barrow says that he will, if Dr. Matron allows it, and is much honored, and he he's getting very, you know, sort of, and and that he would always remember his Royal Highness's condescension, meaning, you know, <laughs> that, that you would condescend to speak to me. So this Barrow, I, I, I we're getting the, the idea that Blaine's right here about Barrow. This doesn't sound like the guy who's taking over a department here. And, and this Marthambles, I was kind of like, okay, I don't remember hearing about this before. It's come to mean kind of an ailment that's unknown to and incurable by medical science. It really comes from a pamphlet, The Quacks of Old London. A Dr. Tufts would make up these diseases to frighten people into buying his worthless potions. And interestingly, during the research on this, there's a 1994 Norton, the publisher Norton's newsletter, where O'Brien himself, in a question and answer session, addressed this term, and uh, O'Brien said, "This is a very fine word that I found in a quack's pamphlet of the late seventeenth or early eighteenth century, advising a nostrum that would cure not only the strong fives and a whole variety of more obvious diseases, but the marthambles as well." Yeah. I've never seen it anywhere else, and it has escaped the OED so, <laughs> the what the Oxford English Dictionary, I take that to mean. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yes, indeed, that's the dictionary. Right. It, 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 interestingly the um this, this idea of being at court and encountering royal personages, there's a crossover with the world of Hornblower here. Oh, in the later Hornblower novels, Hornblower himself encounters King George the Third and the Prince Regent and Sir John Barrow, who really was the second secretary to the the Admiralty. So just like the Spanish treasure ships, there's a little bit of overlap here between some of the real timeline that O'Brien talks about and the real timeline that Forrester borrowed from as well.
0: Well spotted. Very nice.
1: So we're still at the levee, and Stephen sees Hennig Dundas, who is seeming to be pretty pleased with himself, considering he's an illegitimate father, and he's sorry to have missed Jack. He tells Stephen that he, Henage is heading straight back to his ship He had just come up to visit a young person, which presumably is his new illegitimate offspring or the mother thereof, and says, if Maturin had any commissions for North America, or if Dundas could be of any service whatsoever, a line to Eurydice would command him. A line to Eurydice, said Stephen, with the bitterest sudden pang. And this name of this ship... And this bit of mythology really overlaps for Stephen here. Eurydice was the wife of the musician Orpheus, who loved her dearly. One day, Eurydice stepped on a viper, was bitten, and died. Orpheus sang to try and get Eurydice back from the underworld, and after his music softened the hearts of Hades, he was allowed to take her back to the world of the living. Which all crossing the river and the underworld and singing has a bit of a Harry Potter ring to it, if we remember Fluffy, um, who's a bit like Cerberus. Either way. There was a condition here, which is that Orpheus must walk in front of Eurydice, must not look back until they had both reached the upper world. And he began to doubt that she was there, suspecting that Hades had deceived him. And just as he reached the portals and reached daylight, he turned around to gaze on her. And because Eurydice had not yet crossed the threshold, she vanished back into the underworld. Clearly, Stephen would love to bring Diana back. He would Mm -hmm. play any tune or sing any song, I think, to bring her back from the underworld. And any line to Eurydice is a reminder that the line that he sent to her via Ray clearly didn't get there and clearly didn't have its desired result. And maybe also, Mike, there's a connection here to opera because Gluck's opera, Orpheus et Eurydice, or that's the French version of Orpheus and Eurydice, um, written in 1774, would have been well-known, I think, to Jack and Stephen. And there's a very heart-rending aria, J'ai perdu mon Eurydice, sung Orpheus singing in a woman's voice. I don't know quite why it is, but it's always sung by a by a soprano. And it's beautiful, and it's very, very striking, and I'm sure it would have been part of the musical canon that Stephen might have known here.
0: Nice. Nice. Wow.
1: Well, you know, Stephen's met and
0: talked to all these people. He's kind of established his armor, as Blaine told him, and he he had noticed earlier that Ray and Barrows had been sort of staring at Stephen. So now that Stephen has been kind of put in the right position, he starts to stare at them, and Ray finally comes over to him, O'Brien writes, with outstretched hand and a credible appearance of friendly confusion, and and he apologizes. He says that you know, he no longer works with American intelligence and that Stephen's long wait was caused by staff's confused messaging trying to figure out the right person for Stephen to see, and he invites Stephen to come and dine at his house Friday saying that his wife Fanny would be pleased to see him. And we remember Fanny, Admiral Hart's daughter, I believe also Babington's love interest. But I'm trying to remember, have we have we gotten there already? Yeah, we have. Yeah, like, we had. that. We had. Yeah. Okay, good, good. Thank you. Thank you, Ian. And so Stephen sees that Ray is very nervous. His nails are bitten to the quick. He's got eczema on his forehead and the backs of his hands. And Stephen then remembers hearing that this great fortune that Ray had inherited through Fanny, Admiral Hart's daughter, after Admiral Hart had died, had been tied up. It was completely reserved and only for the use of Fanny and her children. And he'd also heard that Ray and his wife, Fanny, could not agree on anything you know, he knows, as as many do, that Ray's personal income is far below his lifestyle, even his regular lifestyle, not mentioning the fact that he has all these ongoing gambling losses at Buttons, his club, most every night, and that Stephen actually had heard that Ray had been carried home drunk from Buttons the night before. Stephen says that he's engaged on Friday, so he's turning down Ray's dinner invitation, but he does need to discuss some matters and suggests that they go from there to Ray's home. It's not matters to be discussed in public.
1: Mm-mm.
0: Ah, so, you know, I, I think Ray's feeling like, I don't have much choice here. You know, Steven's just been talking to royalty. I don't want to get called out here in the midst of the crowd. So they head that way.
1: So this sounds like we're resolving at least one bit of uncertainty here. And let, let's see what's going to happen in this conversation. Um, they walk um, across Green Park. To Ray's house, and Ray tells Stephen what had happened in Malta—a uh, Ray's version of what right. had happened in Malta—and Stephen finds that he's not really very interested anymore. Ray does a mea culpa and blames himself for were escaping, although we know that Lassueur was Ray's boss. Um, at least he says the organization had been destroyed in Malta, and there were no more secrets flowing from Valletta to Paris. Ray says that he's badly out of order and wants Stephen to prescribe something for his belly. And Stephen thinks to himself that actually it's Ray's mind, not Ray's belly, that needs a prescription and doesn't think that Ray could handle the tincture of laudanum that would be required to treat it, that he'd be addicted to it like he is to alcohol. And they now reach Ray's place. And in Ray's library, Ray's still embarrassed by this idea of the debt. He hopes that Stephen doesn't think he's been avoiding him or trying to welch on the debt. He appreciates the forbearance and begs Maturin to accept a note of hand, a promissory note, until the end of the month. After a slight and disagreeable pause, Stephen agreed. And from this point of advantage, he said, fixing Ray with his pale eye and defying him to show the least awareness of his condition, when last you we corresponded in Gibraltar, you were kind enough to suggest taking a letter to my wife since you were traveling overland. Pray, just when did she receive it? And the response from Ray is, I am very sorry to say, I cannot tell. When I reached London, I went round to Half Moon Street at once, but the servant told me his mistress was gone abroad. He added that he had instructions to forward letters, so I put it into his hands. And Stephen, thanks, Ray, and leaves. I We almost think that this is an end to this question, at least that this is closed now, but O'Brien treats us to this horrible spectacle of Ray looking out the window, peeking round the curtains, That's Stephen. It says, if Stephen had seen Ray watching him from behind the lace curtain, grinning and jigging on one leg and making the sign of the cookhold's horns with his fingers, he would quite certainly have turned and killed him with his court sword, for this was a very cruel blow. It meant that Diana had not waited for any explanation, however halting and imperfect, but had condemned him unheard. And this showed a harder, much less affectionate woman than the Diana he had known or had thought he knew a mythical person, no doubt created by himself. I'm oh This goes all the way back mm. to the surgeon's mate and Stephen wrestling with the idea that perhaps he's created this fictional I- ideal of that in his head. He had chosen not to see the evidence and now that it was absolutely forced upon his sight, it made his eyes sting and tingle again and deprived of his myth, he felt extraordinarily lonely. Wow.
0: Yeah. Ouch. Ouch. Yeah this is I, I you know I don't I don't have many words here I'm like no oh, is, oh. really hard well and and I think Stephen doesn't have any words at this point either he just you know Brian tells us that he just takes a very very long walk all over the place and finally returns to his club and it's late but the porter gives him a note sent by a special messenger and it has an Admiralty black seal on it Stephen carries it up to the library where he finds Blaine. Blaine is happy that uh, Clarence, the you know the Duke, was so civil to Stephen, and that Baron, who dotes on Clarence, saw it. And, and Blaine points out that Clarence actually is not very well seen at the Admiralty, but that Barrows misses that he doesn't realize, in Blaine's word, that some royals are more royal than others. <laughs> and you know he he says that this now ensures that Matron will be treated much better. At the Admiralty. And and Stephen says, Yeah, I I, I suspect, you know, kind of I have that in my hands here. So he opens the letter. It's from Barrows, who's apologizing for all the misunderstandings and hopes that Dr. Matron will call again at his convenience. So Blaine tells Stephen that he has learned that the brass box was indeed a cabinet office affair. Mm -hmm. You know, the Navy was only the people that were carrying it, it was not started by naval intelligence. Didn't have to do anything with them other than to kind of get it to the other side of the world. And Stephen should never have been told that it held a much larger sum than those gold chests that were also on board the thing. Blaine is appalled at the indiscretion in government and public servants. And he, and he kind of says that, you know, now all the well informed people around government seem to know about the box. Blaine invites Stephen to go head over with him. He's about to leave to go over to the Royal Society and he's going to meet. Meeting one of the people that's helping him, an engineer from the Horse Guards, and Stephen declines, saying he's missed his dinner, he's walked for a long time, he's he's really tired, and he's ready for bed. And and Blaine kind of is is blowing right by that, saying, "Well, you know, you'd be much better off to eat with me. We'll get something, you know, not too, you know, something that really light, uh, you know, boiled fowl with a little oyster sauce, and then come on over and." see my friends here. My friends are now telling me in Blaine's word that they agree that my mouse is perhaps beginning to assume the form of a rat. Mm. So we're thinking, ah, okay, Blaine's making a little progress on this Whitehall investigation, or at least his friends in the other intelligence service are. And you would think this would pique Stephen's interest, you know? Aha. Okay. We're going to catch these guys. Stephen instead says, "Sir Joseph, forgive me, but tonight, I should not turn in my chair if it assumed the form of a two-horned rhinoceros. Bonaparte may come over in his flat-bottom boats and welcome as far as I am concerned. So clearly, Stephen is like, look, I'm done. Yeah. I, you know, I'm not having any of this. It doesn't matter. I realize it's important, but I can't do it tonight. And one, you know, Blaine has one last thing. He asks Stephen if he knows the name Ovart. And Stephen says he doubts that he's heard it and says goodnight. So we're like,
1: ooh. (laughs) Yeah. Stephen's really, really low, probably as low as we've ever seen him. Yes. And and in the morning, he still hasn't really got any spring about him. An aged club member at breakfast asks if he's going to go to the hangings today. The old member says he loves hangings, gone to them since he was a child. And we learn that the hangings are to be of two eminent bankers guilty of forgery they were to be strung up today among the ordinary people the stock exchange says the old member would spare neither father nor mother wife nor child when it came to that sort of thing i'm like you know extra foreshadowing extra signaling of the risk to reputation and now it turns out life if you're caught out in anything irregular to do with the stock exchange (sighs) so This is a little warning for Jack, but we're still with Stephen as he heads over to the Admiralty. There's a clerk waiting for him, shows him straight into Barrow's room. Ray is there with Barrow this time. Barrow thanks him for coming, regrets the recent misunderstanding. He says, Mr. Lewis's ignorance of Stephen's invaluable, entirely honorary, gratuitous, voluntary services are the reason why Lewis is now going to apologize. Stephen says it's not necessary that he accepts that Lewis had spoken from ignorance and Barrow in turn admits his own ignorance about Stephen's papers. Stephen takes out this brass box. Barrow comments on the seal and Stephen says that seal is from my watch key and tells about the box springing open and having to be sealed which had happened when he and Jack had discovered it on the Danai in the first place. Stephen opens the box and Barrow looking at the top papers is startled, pushes the box away like it's dangerous. The text says he began to say something in an angry disclaiming tone, coughed and changed it to the words it is enormous it is what we heard about said ray he flicked through the rest of the sheaf saying do not be uneasy i will deal with this ledwood and i will see to it all barrow says the sooner it is out of our hands the better and barrow talks about the weight of Stephen's responsibility carrying these papers and asks if anybody else knew that Stephen had them And there are a number of different reasons why it might occur to Barrow to ask that question. Who else knew that you had these papers? Never a Christian soul, said Stephen. Are such secrets even to be shared? Well,
0: Ray leaves with the box, and when he returns, Barrow says they should really have no official knowledge of this matter, this matter of the box. And he suggests that they therefore move on to the second part of the intended conversation, And Barrow says that it's been suggested that Stephen might be induced. And then he stops and he asks Ray to explain it. And Ray says that there's a woman, a French agent, that's been arrested. And it's not only stopped her information, but the information from her sister in Brest. And Stephen knows this agent. And that the arrest was not for spying, but for evading taxes. They're told that the magistrate can be persuaded to dismiss the case. Ray says, in view of her position, the affair obviously calls for exceptional tact and ability and a fair amount of money. It was hoped that Dr. Matron might provide the one, that is, the exceptional tact and ability, while the department could provide the other, the money. And they say they could easily arrange Stephen's passage to Nantes on a vessel which carries brandy and wine from Nantes to England under license from the admiral, the Channel Fleet. So they're they're setting this up just as Blaine had kind of predicted, but had downplayed a little bit. You know, Stephen, why didn't you go over and rescue this agent in France? And we know that sometimes when Stephen gets close to France or French agents, bad things happen, especially when the word gets out. So you want to. How does how does this chapter close out, Ian?
1: Well, Mike, it finishes up with a closing thought from Stephen about this prospective mission to help Madame Lafoyard. I see, I see, he said, looking at them with a considering eye. But what, in fact, did he see? And what did he merely imagine? And how remarkable it was to feel the old eagerness coming to life in his heart, although only that morning he had regarded the whole service with frigid indifference. I see... That the matter calls for some consideration, and since I go down to the country tomorrow, I shall have peace and leisure for reflecting upon it. From what I know of Madame de la Fayard, her imprisonment on such a charge will not be very arduous, nor her interrogation very severe. End of chapter five. Wow. And Mike, it's really fascinating. In chapter four, Ellis Palmer made this proposition to Jack drawing on his enthusiasms for helping out his friend and for feeling like he's part of the establishment. And I'm really, really struck now by the similarity with this proposition to Stephen, which is go to France under cover of the Nantes packet and do this mission and you'll be back in it and you'll be using your tact and we'll put this money to good use. And these two approaches seem to me like they have some similarities and maybe they come from the same source.
0: Right. Right. I mean, you know, what a great opportunity for Ray to get Stephen out of his life, you know, dismiss the gambling debt. It's just uh, really kind of scary here. You know, we're seeing sort of the potential for Jack. And we just got this big hanging, you know, w- with stock market affairs, the potential for Stephen. And, and we've seen that played out before. And and we're still waiting here. We've, we've had Stephen learning about Diana, but Jack is yet to see Sophie you know, Jack thinks this is all good news. We don't know how Sophie sits on the whole Sam Panda thing or, or what's been going on with Sophie since Jack left here. So, you know, what's going to happen to Jack's promised new riches? Is he going to be buying the surprise? Or is this kind of Jack on land all over again? Surely we've got Stephen on land here and hoping he's not going to land in France.
1: Well, Mike, I think this calls for another chapter. What do you say to just a tiny bit more of Patrick O'Brien?
0: Ah, Ian, I would like that of all things.
1: in heaven, you ignorant, incompetent, way faced nestlecock. Mike, I am getting a t shirt made with those words on <laughs> for the, <laughs> for the right day.